Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. David Bowie is one of Fish's most adventurous compositions. It's complex, constantly moving forward through distinct tones and varied concepts before dropping into a jam section that could go almost anywhere. The lyrics are intangible, yet simple. The melody is remarkable and zany. David Bowie, UB40. Clearly an homage to the very existence of the musical icon. On a cool summer day in late August 1987, Fish played David Bowie for the eighth time ever at The Ranch in South Burlington. The show was dedicated to Eric Larson for watching Trey's golden retriever, Marley, that summer. As Eric Larson tells it, When I graduated right after that, Trey wanted to uh, drop Marley off uh, at The Ranch because he was going away for the summer. And he had no way of taking care of his dog. And we had a big property, big house, a lot of people, a lot of dogs. And so uh, he came out with the dog and asked. And we said, yeah, absolutely. We'll take care of Marley. And how about when you get back, you play, a, a, you know, another ranch show. And uh, he readily agreed. And that's how we got another one of uh, those famous shows. 
That was another indoor, in the living room, all nighter, three sets, you know, legendary, went on forever. <laughs> the band used this low key, house party like venue to experiment with covers and jams that stretched the boundaries of conventional rock and roll. Similar to the Goddard College shows that were discussed in episode two, this informal atmosphere helped Fish develop an intimate connection with fans and allowed for intensive musical exploration. In this episode, you'll hear from David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, former hosts of the Beyond the Pond podcast, who will dive into the 82987 Bowie, as well as the entire show at the ranch. After a quick word from our sponsors, they'll provide context for the jam by highlighting other great early versions of David Bowie, while also chatting about some of the best shows of 1987. Finally, they'll explore the careers of four other bands who emerged organically in the 1980s to provide further context to Fish's foundation. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, DistroKid. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Let's toss it to Dave and Brian for a deep dive into the 82987 David Bowie. Why are we talking about this jam? Why are, do we have to be talking about David Bowie from uh, August 29, 1987? So we're just three weeks removed from the first ever Type 2 jammed out David Bowie here on August 29, 1987. And we get one more that expands even further from the song's theme and remains unfinished before a segue into Jesus Just Left Chicago. You know, Dave, hearing Fish jam in the summer of 1987 is a truly revealing moment. The band has ideas that stretch beyond their abilities, but the ambition they reveal is more important than any musical accomplishment. They're playing like this some four years into their career. is everything we need to understand 
why fish will become fish in just five years' time. Yeah, I'd agree that what makes this jam so remarkable is the fact that the band incorporates both space, blues-inspired jam, and noise on a jam segment that sees him segueing directly into Jesus Just Left Chicago without ever returning to the closing David Bowie jam. You got ideas that shift in and out, and we hear, albeit in a rough manner, the frenetic energy and relentless creativity that will define their next true improvisational breakout period, 1993 to 1994. Once again, Eric Larson. Dogs were always ever present. So, uh, a lot of these shows, Ian's farm, of course, uh, right before the Taking Care of Marley show, Ian's Farm uh, show. So we had those back to back on two different weekends. So that was uh, quite a run right there. And uh, that was set off in the country. That one was outdoors and uh, very special. You can hear the dogs on the tape if you listen to those uh, uh, late night recordings. And uh, it's just always fun to have that, uh, that interplay between the fans and the band. And when they stop playing, you're hearing the crowd talking so you can identify people's voices that were at the show. So I think that's always fun to listen to the old tapes and hear all the different people on there. I think in terms of the overall significance of this show, this is just one week following um, the famous Ian's Farm show. So we got Fish back on their home turf. It's another three-set show featuring dogs barking, Fish classics, and uh, some of the earliest signs of the future festival glory the band would achieve just nine years later. Also, you hear lots of coffee people. And at one point, Trey comments what appears to be, quote, that's a beer-drinking dog. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really wild show. If you've never listened to this, it's one of my favorite shows in the 1980s. You get just a very loose version of Fish. Uh, the show opens up with Alumni Blues and a Jimmy Page back into the Alumni. It's got this looseness, this energy. It's got Wilson teases in it. Uh, later in the first set, Sneak and Sally through the alley devolves into a wild and noise-laden vocal jam. Makasupa Policeman moves seamlessly into one of the prettiest jams of the era, get a lot of early, early takes on songs. For example, Big Black Furry, Creature from Mars is in only its second appearance ever. Flat Fee and Lushington are these long forgotten staples of the era. And Susie Greenberg and Yamar are in only their fourth performances ever. The man who stepped into yesterday and only its second performance ever. And what's really neat about this show is that they have like pieces of what will become Fluffhead are kind of scattered throughout the set. And they're labeled as there's Claude, Bundle of Joy, Who Do We Do, all throughout the second and third sets. 
It's basically, it's like Fluffhead deconstructed, if you will. <laughs> you got the fourth ever Curtain With, which features a phenomenal lead segment from Trey, which sounds very similar to Mockingbird. McGrupp here is unfinished and jams with energy into Possum. And the third ever Timber is a raging version with some serious Trey guitar. Got the fourth ever version of Harpua. And Fishman is very strong throughout and a, kind of a swing and take on Mike's song, which features the first ever segue to I Am Hydrogen. Third, and I actually think the sixth of all time, she caught the Katie encore is a quite epic show. Listening to this show, I think you can feel that at this point, uh, the compositional skill and the talent is unquestionably there. At least for me, what can make 1987 shows a little difficult at times to listen to usually boils down to uh, some unusually slow tempos. And the fact that at this stage in the game, I mean, Fish really wasn't able to afford the caliber of gear that they can now. And it kind of sometimes sounds like they're using toy instruments. Yeah, it kind of gets back to what I was talking about in terms of like their ambition is ever present. And that's almost like the most important thing about listening to a show like this. It's them almost channeling 1994, 95, 97 10 years early and you can really hear that so connected if there's a year in which one can point to as the onset of fish's career i would say it's 1987. let's listen to a little bit of the david bowie from august 29th 1987.
As Fish was starting to explore where they could go with groundbreaking compositions like David Bowie, by charting new paths for their jams, like psychedelic music cartographers, other American bands were using their scenes, their personalities and interests to create their own unique sounds. After the break, Dave and Brian are going to talk about a few bands that grew organically to create their own localized scenes. Now we'll take a look at some of these other bands from the 1980s, like Husker Du from St. Paul, Minnesota, Minutemen from San Pedro, California, Yola Tango from Hoboken, New Jersey, and R.E.M. from Athens, Georgia, to analyze their enduring legacies, why some made it out of the 80s, while others are forever locked in the era, and what defined their local scenes. These independent DIY rock bands of the 1980s are all so different, and we found it essential to compare their paths to success with the route Fish chose to gain context into the broader musical landscape of the era. The version of David Bowie from August 29th, 1987 at The Ranch is a deeply exploratory version of the song and a very early raw indication of where the song would go as the band would conclude the 1980s and move into the 1990s, specifically as we saw the band move into their 94 and 95 most experimental phase. We wanted to look at David Bowie here specifically with regards to improvisation as it's a huge jumping off point for where the band would go throughout their career going forward. Why are we talking though about Husker Du, Minutemen, Yola Tango and R.E.M. in conjunction with this David Bowie. All four bands went in various directions throughout the 1980s. Stylistically, from a musical standpoint, they don't share a ton in common with this David Bowie, although you could argue that the final blues breakdown into Jesus Just Left Chicago shares some similarities with what you heard uh, coming out of 80s punk, specifically regarding Minutemen, as well as Husker Du. But really, the jam kind of answers this larger question for Fish that was also a question for all four of these bands. How do you remain yourselves and market that to the larger musical world? As we saw with Husker Du, as well as with Minutemen, what they marketed uh, was a had a limited reach, had a limited audience, and had a limited ability to escape the 1980s. With Yola Tango and with R.E.M., for various reasons, both bands were able to escape the 1980s and move into larger musical arenas, as well as uh, obtain a larger musical following by embracing different styles of music and by embracing different aspects of their personalities and their musical uh, insights. We hear that with Fish. This version of David Bowie goes multitude of directions, but here's the band embracing who they are, what it is that makes them special as musicians and as artists, which allows them then to move beyond the 1980s into one of their biggest periods in the mid-1990s. Let's talk a little about Husker Du. Before we do a deeper dive into the overall sound and highlight of their discography, I thought of them in regards to Fish in the 1980s, largely due to their exponential growth from their inception in 1980 to their breakup in 1988. In the course of only eight years, they put out five full-length albums, essentially invented the sound, and were one of the first underground bands assigned to a major label, all on the strength of a relentless touring and songwriting regimen. Fish went from playing dead covers at Nectar's to the stage of Madison Square Garden in almost the same amount of time. 
on account of their relentless work ethic. As for the city of Burlington, Vermont, it can be argued that 80s Minneapolis and St. Paul were similar in that both were frozen college enclaves in somewhat isolated parts of the country. And much like Nectar's or Hunt's, at a place like Jay's Longhorn Bar, you could hear regional acts like the Hipsters, the Suburbs, and Curtis A., all of whom, much like the Joneses, barely made a dent outside of their hometown, but could easily pack a dance floor within. And much like Hunt's now survives as the lobby of a Hilton Garden Inn, Jay's Longhorn Bar lives on as a storage center for XL Energy. So Husker Du consisted of Bob Mould, Greg Norton, and Grant Hart. They were a melodic hardcore punk trio formed in 1980, kind of noted for being one of the first underground bands assigned to a major label, while birthing a strain of melodic hardcore music that, while plenty hard and fast, evolved to include beautifully written songs within verse-chorus-verse structure. They played a ridiculous amount of live shows, and they made evolutionary leaps among five full-length albums in only four years. I mean, all their albums, the full lengths are kind of good in their own way. If you got to get three, get their uh, immortal run on SST records being Zen Arcade, 1984, New Day Rising, 1985, and also Flip Your Wig, which I think also came out in 1985. Simply like the most powerful. I mean, Zen Arcade was the big double record, their second album established them as a very almost like who, like the who, like a quadrophenia, almost kind of like double record. For my money, New Day Rising probably gives you the best combination of songcraft with hardcore power. Of course, New Day Rising is the one that's got the title track. It's got Celebrated Summer. It's got I Apologize, Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill, just like back to back to back, incredible stuff. Flip Your Wig is basically New Day Rising a touch weaker, still extremely good. If you're going to narrow it down to one Husker Du record in your discography, get New Day Rising. That's a great place to start. But it's really, it's kind of hard to go wrong just because of uh, the quality that they put out in a very short span of time. Tell us a little bit about the Minneapolis DIY scene and what it was like when the Husker Du emerged. In the mid-1970s, there was something of a kind of a punk and hardcore scene began to coalesce in Twin Cities around this band called the Suicide Commandos. They put out one fantastic record. And whose guitarist, Chris Osgood, actually gave guitar lessons to Husker Du's Bob Mould and actually was suggested that, man, you're a pretty good guitarist, you should form a band. Other bands that era included Final Conflict, Loud Fast Rules, who eventually became Soul Asylum, Man Size Action, and Rifle Sport, whose drummer Todd Trainer eventually joined uh, the famous producer Steve Albini in the band Shellac. Some of the venues of the time included First uh, Avenue and the 7th Street Entry, Goofy's Upper Deck, and Jay's Longhorn Bar, which uh, played host to what Bob Mould refers to as the first ever Husker Du show in 1980. So if we're talking Minneapolis, by the mid-1980s, in addition to a punk rock scene, you got to talk about the Minneapolis sound, which was a synthesized heavy strain of funk rock indebted to Minnesota's favorite son, Prince. I mean, some other acts which he kind of helped birth include Morris Day and the Time, 
The producers, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Sheila E., Vanity Six, uh, the list goes on. And of course, there was the punk band most affiliated with the Twin Cities after Huskadu, The Replacements, who were uh, fronted by Paul Westerberg. Their landmark album, Let It Be, was released in 1984, which was the same year as Huskadu's Zen Arcade. But why didn't Huskadu make it out of the 1980s? Well... Mostly, I would say volatility. I mean, they had two alpha dogs in um, Bob Mould, who sang and played guitar, and Grant Hart, who sang and played drums. Two songwriters, and kind of by the end, in 1987, Hart was battling heroin addiction. Mould, who was, uh, was fighting alcoholism, had finally ceased drinking. I think Greg Norton, uh, the bass player, had become a chef. Plus, they had played hundreds of shows, put out five albums in four years, they were kind of wiped out, really. So in that short period in time, what is their enduring legacy as a band? So what they did was they combined a relentless hardcore punk attack with legitimate melodies and songwriting. I mean, they kind of steadily evolved from a shrieking noise band to melodic songs with gigantic hooks. I mean, if you get rid of the um, all the fuzzy noise, I mean, they aren't that far removed from like a folk band. I mean, hmm. they kind of... They proved it was very possible to incorporate tunefulness and melody into a relentless punk rock framework. The Foo Fighters did not exist at Husker Du. Neither would Fucked Up or No Age. And I think, frankly, I wish that more bands would rip them off. <laughs> so in terms of a band like Husker Du, who obviously influenced so many bands that came after them, what do you think would have been their path to larger success beyond uh, this short stint in the 1980s? Well, I mean, you can kind of argue that Husker Du needed to break up to further unleash Bob Mould's creativity. I mean, sort of as soon as 1989, he returned with his first solo album entitled Workbook, which was a largely acoustic singer-songwriting turn. And I think barring a brief flirtation with electronic music in the early 2000s, Mould never stopped producing and never stopped finding ways to put unique spins on uh, the signature Husker Du sound. I mean, he even kind of had a comeback of sorts in the mid-90s with the uh, decidedly more MTV alt-rock band Sugar, and he's perceived to have a very fruitful solo career. I mean, the most recent few years of which have found him returning to the trio format with uh, Jason Arducey on bass and Super Chunk's John Worcester on drums, kind of resulting in some of his most powerful records in years. And I actually was fortunate to see him live about a year ago. And he plays solo songs and Husker Du songs and kind of stripped of the different production. It just sounds like one incredible song throughout his career. And his relevance kind of remains due to like a willingness to evolve while never really shying away from emphasis on the song. Because above all else, I mean, Bob Mould, he's a brilliant songwriter. So whether in Huskudu or somewhere else, you would have had success. Let's move from the Twin Cities to California. Brian, tell me about this band called the Minutemen. So Minutemen were a punk trio from San Pedro, California, which existed from 1980 to 1985. They were comprised of vocalist and guitarist Dee Boone, bassist Mike Watt, and drummer George Hurley. Uh, 
So part of the reason that we use Minutemen as a band to explore here in comparison to Fish, um, first and foremost, Fish nearly covered their record at Double Nickels on the Dime for the Festival 8 uh, cover album segment. But if you listen to that album, you hear kind of hints at where Fish would go in the mid-1990s. And you hear this inspiration from talking heads and rhythmic kind of musical inspirations that led to bands like television in the late 1970s and spread across the country to Southern California. I think as well, part of the reason that we wanted to focus on Minutemen is that in the five years that the band existed, touring was the most important aspect of their overall career. Uh, opening up for bands like Black Flag, opening up for REM, put them in a position where they were seen by a large amount of people. Their shows really drew people in. Uh, the overall frugal nature of their shows was a thematic aspect of what really connected people to Minutemen and really brought a scene along with them and if you compare that with kind of fish's throwback to uh, the 60s San Francisco type of scene uh, being recreated in Burlington and uh, throughout the Northeast it offers you an opportunity to kind of really see the comparisons between what may not seem similar at all but Southern California punk and uh, Northeastern kind of prep school hippie type of image uh, the band was formed in the early 1970s when Boone and Watt became childhood friends. Boone's mom taught Dee how to play guitar and convinced Watt to learn how to play bass. After forming and breaking up a number of bands in the 1970s, the duo formed Minutemen in 1980 as a nod to colonial militias and a jab at the right-wing reactionary group of the 1960s of the same name. Their first gig is an opening act for Black Flag. In 1984, they released their masterpiece, Double Nickels on the Dime, one of the most important albums of the 1980s and an enduring example of the rhythmic and anti-rock sound that would define American underground rock during the era. The record tossed around punk, rock, noise, spoken word, jazz, all while covering themes such as the Vietnam War, racism, class inequalities, the working class, and linguistics. Following the release of their most commercial album, 1985's Project Mersh, the band toured with R.E.M. and played their final show on December 13, 1985. Guitarist D. Boone was tragically killed in a car accident on December 22, 1985, and Minutemen ceased to exist. So the Minutemen released a bunch of EPs and records in a very short amount of time, but the record that if you're going to listen to anything from them that really showcases who the band is, it's 1984's Double Nickels on the Dime. Uh, this is a 40-track record, I believe, across about an hour uh, and four minutes. Uh, it definitely hits you over the head and over the head and over the head again about what Minutemen are all about. There's spoken word, there's jazz, there's noise, there's aggressive punk, there's hooks everywhere. Ultimately, uh, listening to this record, so Fish teased this record in the run-up to Festival 8 as a potential album that they were going to cover. If you recall the website that they used back in the fall of 2009, they killed off a record every single day. This was on there. Uh, they 
had some fun with this website where they uh, you know, would put little Easter eggs in album covers. Uh, if you've ever seen the album cover for Double Nickels on the Dime, Paige's face was in the rearview mirror of the car uh, in question. Uh, super fun stuff. And the record itself is just like a whirlwind of incredible songwriting, uh, really empowered and impassioned messaging about uh, blue collar working class uh, America in the early 1980s. 1984 is generally regarded in music as one of the biggest years from a pop standpoint, as well as from a rock standpoint. It's the year that Reagan was nearly unanimously reelected in America. And Double Nickels on the Dime really sounds like the underground and the underbelly of America, which would really bubble up over the next five to six years and really emerge in the early 1990s with grunge. That's a, that's a crazy record. It's a lot. Yeah. I don't know how Fish would have pulled that off on stage because some of the songs aren't so much songs as like riffs and fragments and bass hits. And if you get doesn't give you time to get bored because few of the songs are longer than like a minute and a half. I think the fish could have covered it. Like there's really great, uh, like playful bass throughout that I think would have really been beneficial for Gordo. Fishman would have had an absolute field day. And to your point about the like 92nd songs, they all segue into each other, which I think would have really worked well in a, a fish crowd. I think the only problem that they would have had like at a festival playing a Halloween album, uh, Exile on Main Street was kind of the perfect choice just in terms of everybody knows that album. I think you would have had a lot of fans kind of scratching their heads during Double Nickels. Oh, yeah. For some extra credit, if you want to go beyond Minutemen, uh, when they broke up, they eventually turned into the band Firehose, which was Minutemen's rhythm section with the new frontman, Ed Crawford, who was a huge Minutemen fan, basically knocked on Mike Watt's door and said, hey, dude, I love your band. Let's form a band. What would you say the Southern California punk scene was like when the Minutemen emerged? So hardcore punk dominated the punk scene in Southern California in the early 1980s with bands like Black Flag, Social Distortion, Wasted Youth, NoFX, Minutemen, as well as the Dead Kennedys in San Francisco. The scene became something of a battleground between punks and police as violence broke out in a number of shows instigated, as many would later say, by the police. Black Flag was consistently followed by the police who believed them to be a front for a drug ring. The sounds produced during this period would go on to influence metal bands like Anthrax, Slayer, as well as Metallica. What would you say is their enduring legacy? Well, simply put, they're considered one of the greatest punk rock bands ever. Their sound translates across punk, rock, dance, noise spectrum in a way that's really rare for the punk scene and better aligns with the work of a band like Television. Along with their influence on metal, Minutemen provided an example of frugality in modern rock music that has had a significant impact on a number of young punk bands. What do you think would have been uh, their path to larger success? The band was clearly adored by bands that would see larger commercial success, namely Black Flag and R.E.M., and their songs had hooks. They also had swing that would add to jams in their songs that could have been expanded in a television-type manner. 
A better produced and slimmed down double nickels combined with constant touring combined with alliances with bands who had a path to mainstream success in REM would have been a high next step for the trio. All right, let's continue our journey around America in the 1980s and exploring organic scenes of music around the country where really great bands were brewing and growing. We're going to cross the country, go from California all the way to Hoboken, New Jersey, talk about one of our favorite bands of all time, Yola Tango. Tell us about Yola Tango and the emergence of their scene in the mid-1980s, Dave. Yola Tango is a band we discussed at length on Beyond the Pond, and we'll do so again here. But initially, uh, they called to mind Fish in the 1980s to me, partially because the first album was released in 1986, and they started building up their chops only a few years prior, but also because they were all serious music dorks with a reverence for history and many cover songs before they began to draft originals. Furthermore, their earliest gigs essentially consisted of parties for their close friends. While there wasn't, and still isn't, a member of Yola Tango with the sheer acumen of a Trey Anastasio, both bands were allowed to grow organically outside of the mainstream. Furthermore, the Maxwell's venue in the hometown of Hoboken, New Jersey, allowed them to have a comfy home field advantage which to showcase their wares alongside regional acts like the DBs, Beelies, and the Bongos. Much like the Dude of Life commented back in the first episode on the sheer number of bars in Burlington, Vermont, relative to its overall size, Washington Street in Hoboken is basically nothing but bars and restaurants, seated by the college kids at the Stevens Institute of Technology and the simple fact that New York City is only 15 minutes away on the path train. Currently, Yola Tango consists of Ira Kaplan on guitar, Georgia Hubley on drums, and James McNew on bass guitar. Everyone takes turns singing. Everyone will play a keyboard or percussion instrument from time to time. Uh, McNew came on full-time in 1992 as the band's 18th or so bass player, and they're easily their best one. Kaplan and Hubley are a married couple, and the first time they ever played together was at a friend's birthday party at the offices of the New York Rocker, which was a punk and new wave magazine that was in existence from 1976 to 1982, and which employed Ira Kaplan as a critic. They played lots of covers. So if you're ever wondering why some people refer to Yola Tango as rock critic or record collector music, the anecdote goes a long way towards explaining why. And Yola Tango pulls from all styles of music. They've shared the stage with everyone from old school British punk rockers to New York City avant-garde jazz bows to Alex Chilton. Their reverence for the canon of rock and roll is legion, but if you're going to point to a single band which they might be sonically compared, it's probably the Velvet Underground. As much for uh, bubblegum nuggets of the loaded era as the appeals of noise from white light, white heat. They're simply a band in love with sound. And at their headiest, music can get loud. Their discography is extremely rich. Again, if you have to focus on the really 
the stuff that will convert you, you have to go with the records Painful from 1993, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One from 1997, and Then Nothing nothing Turned Itself Inside Out from 2000. Those are their three best records. I don't think anybody can dispute that. And they're all incredible in their own way. Painful, I guess, was the first record where James McNew really came into the fore. Although he was Mm. on the previous record, May I Sing With Me. I think Painful is the first one where he got to, um, you know, chip in with the songwriting and whatnot, as opposed to kind of being a hired gun. And that's, that's the leap forward. That's maybe my favorite Yola Tenga record. All the songs that album, I think they're still in pretty heavy live rotation. And it's just got some of the most glorious guitar squalls anywhere. Yeah, the segue from the start of Big Day coming into from a Motel 6, like what a statement from the band before they moved into their strongest era. Yeah, absolutely. There's a record in between that one, and I can hear the heart beating as one being Electra Pura from 1995, also very, very good. I can hear the heart beating as one is just the sound of a band doing whatever the fuck they want and not being <laughs> embarrassing for a second. Then And then nothing turned itself inside out is their famous Shades of Blue, their like late night rumination record, the record you want to listen to before you're going to bed, the record kind of about like fragile husband-wife relationships and love. It's definitely, it's a mood. And the mood is great. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous album. What has led to their enduring appeal in the overall underground rock scene? Well, Brian, I think that they've been at this for nearly 34 years, and they've never compromised their ideals. Furthermore, I mean, Yola Tango has shared the stage at nearly any band you can care to name, and they've invited several more to join them at their annual New York City Hanukkah shows in December. They're your favorite band's favorite band. I mean, they've had a strong influence on real estate, Oneida, Steve Gunn, William Tyler, just about any band that you would want to see probably gushes over Yola Tango. Plus, they have impeccable taste in other artists and a bottomless bag of cover songs. They give lots of their concert proceeds to charity. I mean, there's really very little in the way of false steps in their career. And tell me, what are the parallels that you see between Yola Tango and Fish? There are several. I mean, at its most basic while their studio work is excellent they thrive on stage like changing the set list drastically every night never shying away from improvisation or different arrangements if they do a residency in your town it's never enough to see just one but also their dedication to evolution i mean they constantly change up the musical formula while still somehow sounding like nobody else but yola tango in addition to very sturdy songwriting I mean, Ira Kaplan, his tone, just like Trey, you listen to him for 20 seconds, you know exactly who it is. Plus, I mean, Yola Tango in 1986 bears minimal sonic relation to Yola Tango in 1996, and they've done recent forays into ambient sounds and minimalism that simply would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. I mean, 
they really proceed at their own pace. They essentially ignore outside trends and they kind of treat rock and roll music like a vocation. When they're not on stage, they're soundtracking movies, constantly practicing at their space in Hoboken. And also, like Fish, impeccable taste in other artists and the bottomless bag of cover songs. <laughs> it's a mutual admiration society. They actually, um, a few years ago, they opened for Ghost of the Forest out in California. Also, uh, would be remiss not to point out, if you want to learn more about Yola Tango and 80s underground music, we have to point you in the direction of our Osiris colleague, Jesse Jarnow's book, Big Day Coming, which came out a few years ago. Simply a fantastic overview of both of these things and meticulously researched like only an obsessive like Jesse is capable of. So check that out. All right, now that we've talked a little bit about Jersey in the 80s, I'm going to make a suggestion, Brian, that we go down south to Georgia and I'll let you discuss one of my favorite bands of all time, R.E.M. Tell us about this R.E.M. So why are we talking about R.E.M. in comparison to Fish in the 1980s? R.E.M. is one of the biggest bands of the 1990s. Why compare them to Fish at this point in time? Well, the 1980s were an incredibly rich and prolific period for R.E.M. They recorded a number of albums, including five albums in five straight years, and they really saw them set the foundation of who they would be as a band going forward. Peter Buck's shimmering guitars, Michael Stipe's very clear very thoughtful, very emotional vocals coming through were two immediate signposts to you're hearing R.E.M. on the radio right now. Biggest difference between R.E.M. and Fish is that R.E.M. was able to kind of glom on to the larger college rock scene and start to tour on a more national and even like regional basis in a lot of cases. They were playing shows around the country. They were teaming up with punk bands like Minutemen that we discussed earlier. And they were starting to expand to the point that they were played on the radio as early as 1987. This was obviously a very different experience for Fish in the 1980s as they stayed pretty isolated until the later part of the decade and then found this isolation and create a very uh, dedicated fan base, but also prevent them in some cases from receiving larger radio credit. But in terms of the similarities to the two bands and why we would discuss them, R.E.M. and Fish are two of the most successful bands to make it out of the 1980s, especially from an organic DIY type scene. R.E.M. set the foundation for alternative rock which blew up in the early 1990s with Nirvana and Pearl Jam, two bands, Pavement as well, uh, a number of bands that really focused on R.E.M. as a core influence for their songwriting and what they were trying to communicate as a band. Fish helped to usher in the jam band scene that would explode in the 1990s, remained somewhat counter to the larger culture, even as alternative rock became embraced by larger radio, but also was able to put them in a position where they were able to start playing festivals. They were able to really make this uh, as, as big of a career as possible for them. So the two bands really showcase like what success looks like for young countercultural bands coming out of the 1980s and two divergent paths that you could take as a band coming out of that period in time. They combined punk with folk, with classic rock, with jangle pop, creating a rich and emotionally driven sound that differed from much of what was coming out of the 1980s new wave scene. Their biggest single, 
the one I love projected them to mainstream success, and they signed with Warner in 1988. Never losing their initial focus, the band spent the majority of their remaining peak at 1988 through 1998 promoting environmental conservation, political freedoms, and human rights while they toured stadiums and arenas around the world. Out of Time, Automatic for the People, and Monster followed in the 1990s, perhaps their three biggest albums, which showcased their evolution from the jangly sounds of the 1980s to a more hard-edged, Euro-driven rock of the 1990s. So REM, I feel like you can look at in two uh, really distinct periods. Um, their 1980s, everything from Murmur through Green, just solid, solid records as you're moving through uh, their first five albums that came out. They put out a record a year, basically, throughout the mid-80s, right? Yeah, from 83 to 88, album a year. It's just an incredible output of songwriting and like really subtle development. Like you go from one album to the other and you don't hear this like gigantic leap forward. And that's kind of the point. They're just like honing a craft and chipping away at things. Um, and then you jump into the 90s and you've got these three records, Automatic for the People, Monster, and... Um, New Adventures in Hi-Fi that are so diverse and showcase just different soundscapes and different ideas that the band could create. Um, I, like many who were born in the mid-80s, had their first CD, Monster, which uh, is available at every secondhand record shop in uh, America. It's just a really great, like you hear these subtle growth of the 80s kind of spill over into this just total creative output even as they were becoming one of the biggest bands in america with those three albums in the 90s their discography is pretty close to flawless things get once the drummer bill barry left the band in the 1996 things got a bit little bit spottier as they kind of learn to navigate as a trio but certainly um every one of the 80s records is golden and like you said a run from Automatic from the People, Monster, New Adventures, and Hi-Fi is great. My three favorite REM records would have to be Automatic for the People, Murmur, and then probably Life's Rich Pageant. I mean, Automatic is Stone Cold classic, which belongs hanging in the Smithsonian Desert Island record. Murmur shows a band incredibly fully formed for their debut record. And Life's Rich yeah. Pageant is kind of the one where Michael Stipe stopped whispering and started like singing and more shouting. It's kind of got like a little beefier drum sound. I think they hired like John Mellencamp's producer for that record. So that's where he starts to really come out of his shell, which would manifest itself in uh, big commercial successes in the next record's document in green. What was uh, the Athens, Georgia indie rock scene like when R.E.M. emerged? We know it's a college town, but tell me a bit else about it if you can. Athens has been a music hub since at least the years immediately following the Civil War. The founding of the Morton Theater in the early 20th century made it a hub for black musicians to play. And the 1950s made it an important spot for rock music to emerge in the South with local shows throughout town. The 1970s saw the first band break out of Athens into the mainstream with the success of the B-52s. 
And the town at large has been described by author Richie Underberger as, quote, a sleepy place where it's difficult to imagine anyone working up a sweat, let alone playing rock music. The contributions of Athens to rock, country music, and bluegrass have earned it the nickname the Liverpool of the South, and the city is known as one of the American birthplaces for both modern alternative rock and new wave music. Athens was home to the first and most famous college music scene in the country, beginning in the 1970s. So in terms of comparing Athens and Burlington, there's some very clear comparisons uh, in, in the sense that both are college towns. Both are slightly removed from a larger metropolitan area. Athens is south of Atlanta, Georgia. Burlington is just northeast of Boston, Massachusetts. Both attract people from their region and really reflect what that larger region feels like from a countercultural standpoint. And both you know, are hotbeds for music and for creativity. At the time of the 1980s, Athens had really risen as this musical community in the South. At the time, there was endless bars up and down their main street that allowed you the opportunity to play music and really get your voice out there. Up in Burlington, there were something like 30, 40 bars that were available that were playing music within like a nine block square radius, offering you the opportunity as a musician to really get your ideas, your music out there. Athens shares something in common with Burlington that goes beyond REM. The jam band Widespread Panic, which, were, which grew out of the 1980s as well, was from Athens. And, you know, that experience of having these two bands that, uh, that, that would go on to headline festivals and headline the kind of larger hippie culture that would grow in the 90s and in the 2000s um, really is an exemplary comparison between the two cities. What do you think led REM to become one of the the biggest bands of the 1990s. I think their success as an underground band in the 1980s exploded with three huge albums in the 1990s. They were honored by cool, young, alternative bands, Nirvana and Pavement, most notably, for being the forebears of alternative rock, and their albums, Automatic for the People and Monster, were massively successful, both in terms of album sales and massive singles. While they rarely toured, they took a six-year gap from 1989 to 1995. They maximized the final period of album singles dominance and were seen by many as one of the last gasps of the connecting point in classic rock. So how did R.E.M. retain their artistic integrity even as they became one of the most successful bands of their era? Two reasons. What they were doing worked. They were making full albums from their debut, Murmur in 1983 and kept producing high quality records throughout the 1980s. Their songs were emotionally driven and they didn't need to compromise this to continue growing. Songs like The One I Love, Orange Crush, and The End of the World tackled emotion in a sincere and dryly humorous way that connected with Gen X listeners who demanded more. Second reason, the celebrated example of a band who put more and more time and money into their music even as they became more and more successful. After releasing five albums in five years, they took three years to make Out of Time. While it's not their best album, it resulted in Losing My Religion, one of the strongest singles of the era, and a culmination in many ways of, the sound, of their sound to that point. From there, their next three records, Automatic, Monster, and Hi-Fi, showcased true diversity in their sound and abilities which only furthered praise and commitment from their fan base.
we started this episode with a dive into the 829-1987 version of David Bowie, and you heard Dave and Brian talk about what these early shows allowed Fish to do musically, and where they were heading during that time. Beyond Fish, we explored four bands who came of age during the early 1980s through the burgeoning local and DIY scenes, which helped to influence the directions of underground music for the next decade. To varying degrees of success, Husker Du, Minutemen, Yola Tango, and R.E.M. each defined underground rock in the 1980s in their own way. Like Fish, they built off contagious energy of an organic fan base. However, each took their own path to an endpoint, or out of the 1980s and into the unknown digital world of music into the great beyond. We hope that by learning about these bands, you have a better context to the path Fish took in the 1980s. In the next episode of Undermine, we'll hear from many of those who were on the ground in the 80s about Fish's songwriting development, as well as an in-depth conversation with one of Trey's compositional partners about some of Fish's early songs and some of the seminal compositions that form the base of Fish music. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah Eckstein. Production assistance from Christina Collins and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. Please make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at OsirisPod. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.